announcement about something you need to be aware of. About 30 minutes before Sunday school, uh, we learned that Susan Newman's mother was transported, uh, airlifted to Louisville, Kentucky. That's, they live in Kentucky uh, because she had had a stroke this morning. So I'm gonna ask if you would join me in prayer as we pray for the Newman family, pray for Susan, her, her mother and her father and her brother who are, is there with them right now uh, and lift them before the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just come to you uh, recognizing your sovereign hand in all things. Lord, we know that you are the giver of life, that, Lord, you preserve life, and, Lord, you not only do that here on earth, but you also allow us to experience life and glory through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, it is times when tragedy strikes that we need to lay hold of the promises that you have given us. And so, Lord, I do lift up Susan's mother to you right now. I pray for the doctors who are at work on her. I pray, Lord, for her husband. I pray for Susan's brother who is ministering to them now and for Susan, Lord, who I'm sure is very anxious in this moment as she awaits to hear news. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would comfort this family, that you would give them a great faith in you and a trust and solace in you at this moment. And, Lord, we pray the same for ourselves. We pray that we would be able to take whatever we brought into this room with us that is a burden right now, whatever is feeling a great weight upon us in this moment. We pray, Lord, that we would set that aside in faith and pray that the words that you were about to give us through your Bible, that, Lord, they would strengthen us, they would encourage us, and they would build our great faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. May he receive all of the glory this morning. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. I've had many of you tell me that you were greatly aided by our last sermon from Matthew chapter 17. And if you will, please turn back there again with me right now. Again, that's found on page 822 in your pew Bible. You might want to actually open it up in your Bibles because we're going to be referring to chapter 16 as well. If you remember, when we looked at verses 14 through 21, we saw the disciples had demonstrated a weak faith. We saw back in chapter 10 that Jesus had granted them the authority to cast out demons. But from the evidence within our text here, they appeared to give up on the first try with this difficult, unclean spirit, and they did not resort to prayer. It's not that they lacked faith, but that their faith was small in that moment or weak. They were not resting in the promises that Jesus had made to them. Now, I also had several people ask me, well, what does this look like practically in the life of a believer? That's a fair question. Let me give you just a, a couple of examples of how I applied this text to myself in the last two weeks. I was on my way to a very difficult counseling situation. I was dealing with a person who was hurt very deeply and very emotionally. They were struggling to find peace with God in their situation. And as I was driving to meet with them, it seemed like the adversary was in my mind, and he was telling me, you're in over your head in this moment, Blair. You are inadequate for the task. All you have to offer this person are the scriptures. You can't comfort them. And the Holy Spirit intervened with the truth of this text that's before us. And I told myself, Blair, you are demonstrating a weak faith right now. Where is your faith? What is it in? Is it in your own capabilities? The Bible tells us that the word will not return void. 
And just as we share in Christ's sufferings, his, his word is sufficient in this moment that we should share abundantly in his comfort too. The gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. And, and I was bolstered to walk into that counseling se- uh, session armed with only the Holy Scriptures. And while myself and the hurting person are, are still working through some issues, the text appears to be working in the heart of this individual. In, in another example, I needed to deal with conflict between myself and another church member. I had unknowingly offended them. And as I picked up the phone to deal with it, it felt like resolution to the situation was far removed from that moment. But again, my thoughts were directed to Matthew chapter 17. Blair, you you have a weak faith. You have the Holy Spirit residing inside of you, and the other people that you're speaking to also have the Holy Spirit that resides in them. Do you not believe in the God of reconciliation? I dialed the number and proceeded to bring about healing as only the Holy Spirit could do in such a situation. In both scenarios, I went from a weak faith of relying upon my own power and devices to a stronger faith of trusting in the Lord. I bring this up because the concept of weak faith versus strong faith is relevant to our two verses this morning. The disciples have returned from the district of Caesarea Philippi. That's mentioned back in chapter 16, verse 13. And they've assembled back in Galilee in distinctly Jewish territory. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew writes here in verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This seems to be a pivotal moment. As Jesus re-enters the promised land, with this declaration, he is marching into the final phase of his mission. From here, he will begin making his way to Jerusalem to fulfill these very words. And it's worth lingering here for a moment as these two verses conclude this unit that began back in chapter 16. This is the third prophetic word concerning the death of Jesus and his resurrection within this section. And I'd like us first to consider what we learn from each of these three. Then second, look at how the inspired writer just masterfully wove these predictions into his narrative. And I think we're going to see something remarkable here that's going to encourage every believer. Lastly, we will see Jesus' strong faith as he adheres to the Father's plan. In my opinion, it's, it's perfect timing to contemplate the cross and his resurrection as we consider our Lord's first advent. And of course, let us think about how we should apply such lessons to our own lives. So in way of headings, you have three predictions, how they're used, how Jesus fulfilled them, and the applications. So like I said, this is the third time that Jesus refers to his death and resurrection. Let's look at the other two. The first is found in chapter 16, uh, verse 21. Matthew writes there, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, if you'll remember, Jesus took issue with this pronouncement. He told Jesus this would never happen on his watch. And the Lord sharply rebuked him, saying, Satan, or Peter, you're acting like Satan right now. And this led into a challenge to all of the disciples that if they would come after him, they must deny self, take up their crosses, and follow Jesus. That's the context. But look at how specific is the Lord's prophetic word here. He says this will occur in the capital city of Jerusalem, where the temple is located, where sacrifices are made, 
He will suffer at the hands of the elders, which is likely a reference to the Sanhedrin, the governing elders of the people. The Jews were were granted a special dispensation by the Roman government to mind their own civic affairs. And the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, handled civil suits and mediated official responses between the Romans and the Jewish citizens. Jesus also mentions here the chief priest. Notice that it's in the plural. The Sadducees' party presented candidates for chief priests to the Roman governor who approved their choice. So technically, the chief priests were more or less puppet priests of the Romans, and they jockeyed for scraps of power over the people. But when one held the office of chief priest, they kept the title for life even when another came behind them, kind of like when a former U.S. president is replaced, they're still allowed to keep the title. Here Jesus speaks of chief priest in the plural, meaning that more than one will be involved. So he states the Sanhedrin, the chief priest, and the scribes, think of the lawyers here, all of the political apparatus of the Jews will cause him to suffer. And note how this escalates. It will lead to his death. They will kill him. But he will be raised on the third day. That's the first prediction. Then we have the second one in chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus is descending down the mountain with three privileged disciples that were allowed to witness his transfiguration. And if you'll remember, Moses and Elijah appeared alongside Jesus in all of his glory. But as they're coming down from the mountaintop experience, the disciples want a solution to the dilemma that will be posed by the scribes. They just saw the historic Elijah with Jesus. The scribes were probably telling the people, well, we know Messiah will be with us when Elijah appears. When Elijah shows up, then we'll know that the true Messiah is here. Much like people believe that that certain events must occur before Jesus returns before his second advent. And here Jesus answers them, and he sets them straight in verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had been speaking to them about John the Baptist. Elijah and the person of John the Baptist had appeared. John had been consistently preaching a message of repentance, and the kingdom of God was at hand, meaning the rightful king, the Messiah, was about to be revealed. And when Jesus arrived, John the Baptist pronounced of him in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said after me, Comes a man and who ranks before me because he was before me. In the spirit of Elijah, John was restoring all things. He was pointing the people back to what was truly important, not meticulously keeping the law, but to a Savior that could save them from their sins. But don't miss what Jesus was saying about this second appearance of Elijah. Remember when the scribes would say, when Elijah appears, then we'll know that the Messiah is here? Well, Elijah did appear. And instead of welcoming him, what did they do to him? Not only did they fail to recognize him, but they imprisoned him and they executed him. None of the religious leaders stood up for John to get released from Herod and Herodias' vengeful pride. And Jesus said, if they did that to John, the anticipated Elijah figure, then certainly, and here he uses the Greek word melee here, meaning it must come about, it is destined to happen, then certainly 
the Son of Man will suffer at the hands of these same men. Therefore, it is implied that Herod might also be involved in some way with our Lord's suffering. But don't lose sight here that in chapter 17 also, remember Jesus tells them that as they come down from, from this particular moment, Jesus says, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So he's also referring to his resurrection a second time in this passage. And then we have this third prediction in today's text that echoes what came before it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Note the words, about to be delivered. From here on out, the conflict with the religious leaders is about to intensify. And so it begins. This prophetic word was so ominous that Matthew reveals the disciples were greatly distressed. But, but the irony is that the statement was meant to encourage the disciples, not distress them. Note Jesus said, I may be delivered here into the hands of men, but that is all they are, merely men. The Father is sovereign. They may kill the body, but Jesus is trusting in the one that preserves body and soul. Just as certain as he will suffer, he is equally certain that he will be raised on the third day. His faith is absolutely rock solid. It is sure. Now, when we look back to the beginning of this unit, we see these predictions weaved into moments of either no faith or weak faith in which they are always compared to the rock-solid faith of the Lord Jesus trusting in the Father's will. In the first few verses of chapter 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are demanding a cosmic sign from Jesus as proof to his divine claims. They ask for this because they refuse to believe the evidence that has already been presented. Jesus has already done enough. He's performed enough miracles, spoken enough and, uh, of his teaching to prove who he is. And therefore, like the Ninevites with Jonah, they should respond to his teaching and repent. But they refuse to listen. None of these religious leaders follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. They demonstrate no faith. But despite this conflict with the religious leaders, the disciples do not abandon Jesus. They do get into the boat with him in order to follow him. And they demonstrate some faith. In the next scene, Jesus confesses, or Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we can assume that he speaks on behalf of all of the disciples here because no one shouts out, Peter, you are blaspheming here. But they all continue to follow Jesus. Here they demonstrate a strong faith. And then immediately after this amazing confession by Peter, Jesus reveals his plan of what he must do to be Messiah, and Peter rebukes him, saying, Lord, you will not do it this way. And Peter demonstrates a weak faith. And this is when Jesus admonishes him and tells both he and his disciples what is required. If you would come after me, you must deny self, take up the cross, and follow me. And despite the prediction and the challenges, no one leaves. No one deserts him. They continue to follow him, and they are demonstrating in this moment some faith. When Jesus returns from the transfiguration, 
He finds a dispute going on between the father of the demoniac and the disciples. The disciples could not cast this demon out due to their weak faith. And we learn from Mark and Luke's account that they should have prayed in order to do this, but they gave up too soon. It's not that they did not have faith. It was just they had weak faith. And get this, in verse 22 tells us the disciples here were all together in Galilee. This means that Peter, James, and John, who just witnessed the transfiguration, were present. They had just witnessed here two historical figures next to Jesus. Moses and Elijah were not dead. They were alive and breathing, and they were talking and conversing with Jesus. And Jesus was sitting there in all of his glory, just radiating before these three men. Then God the Father speaks and tells these men, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. They had seen the Shekinah glory coming from Jesus, two dead men alive, the voice of God say, this is my beloved son, and yet verse 23 reveals they were still distressed. They were still worried about where and what these men could do to Jesus despite having witnessed the the power of God firsthand. I would say they were demonstrating a weak faith in such a moment. And this is in such contrast to the faith that Jesus is exhibiting himself. He is following the plan of the Father to a T. There was a plan that the Father had in place for Jesus. And according to Ephesians 1, God the Father had a plan where he would save mankind. We learn of it all the way back in the first chapter of Matthew. The angel told Joseph not to fear in taking Mary as his wife. Why? Because she shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Not perhaps save, not might save, not maybe save a few of their sins, but he will save his people from their sins. Paul said Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. And Paul would tell us how in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And what did you preach, Paul? What did you preach in order to bring salvation? He says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Salvation comes from the same gospel that we preach on this day. This was the plan all along. As he was crucified, Jesus Christ would die in our stead, take upon himself our sin to pay the sin debt that we owed God for our transgressions. Isaiah 53, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This was the Father's plan of salvation. This is how he would save a sinful people to himself and not hold their iniquities against them. This is why Jesus prayed in the garden on that faithful night, Father, not my will, but your will be done. What the Father was demanding from the Son was hard. But the hope and what Jesus was doing was that he was doing the Father's will. It was the Father's will to save us, and this is how it was to be accomplished. Therefore, Jesus willingly obeyed. And we'll see it unfold in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest companions at the instigation of these religious leaders that he talks about. 
He will first be arrested by the authority of the Sanhedrin, and he will stand before that council in chapter 26 along with two chief priests, Caiaphas, the high priest, and his father-in-law, Annas, the former high priest. And in verse 67 and 68 of that chapter, these men, these elders, priests, and scribes charged the Son of God with blasphemy. They beat him. They spit on him. They mock him. They make him suffer. Then they take him and deliver him into the hands of the Romans, who alone had the power of execution. And Pilate, the Roman governor, he didn't want to deal with him, so he sent him to Herod, the same man that executed John the Baptist. And and rather than intervene and save Jesus, he sends him right back to Pilate. And we see in chapter 27 that the entire population of Jerusalem was given the choice to either free Jesus or Barabbas, a known criminal and murderer. And they overwhelmingly choose Barabbas in favor of the meek and mild Jesus. Jesus is again taken to be mocked and whipped within an inch of his life by the Romans. And then they took his limp body with so little strength and they nailed him to a cross of wood. And it is also there that Jesus took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins. Why? Well, Paul explains in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we, both Jew and Gentile, we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To say that he would suffer and be killed to accomplish this was a vast understatement. Every single event that Jesus predicted came true. Stood before the council? Check. Stood before chief priest? Check. Treated in similar fashion as John the Baptist? Check. Killed by his own people? Check. Why did it have to be this way? Because by foretelling it beforehand, Jesus is showing who is in control. The Father is. He said so in John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. These events are not happening randomly. This is not a series of unfortunate events. This was all by design. Jesus is exhibiting faith, trusting his Father each step of the way despite the agony. Don't discount the final event, though, because there's one more prediction here in the text. In fact, it's mentioned in all three of them. Jesus also said he would be killed, and three days later, he would be raised. And he was Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Up to 500 people at one time saw him alive and breathing after the cross and his burial. Jesus is alive. Sin is defeated. Death is no more. The curse is broken. The debt is paid in full. God is no longer our opponent, but we are his children standing before him in the righteousness of Christ. And we're now free to live and free to love as God created us to. Jesus is alive and he is reigning forevermore. Jesus followed the Father's will to completion. In proclaiming this third prediction, Jesus revealing that what is happening to him is no random tragedy, it has a purpose. 
God is not allowing any event to occur on earth without his sovereign purpose. So what does this mean for us? Is the only nugget here that Jesus completed the work of our salvation, is that all we're meant to apply? Well, in its context, I would say that is not the only application, though it should be the first that any person should grasp onto. If you are lost in your sins, here is your lifeline. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he died for you to take away your sin and believe in that alone. But I see three more applications here. First, note the weak faith of the disciples as they grew in their sanctification. They were not always perfect. They did not always understand. Sometimes in their walk with Jesus, they had great fear. Yet even though they had moments of weakness, Jesus was not done with them yet. In your walk with Jesus, you will have moments of strong faith and moments of weak faith. But the beauty is that as you experience these tests of faith, they are, they are not meant to fail you, but to grow you, to make you steadfast in the work of the Lord Jesus. It is Jesus that has you, and his grace is sufficient, particularly in the moments when your faith is weak. Second, notice that Jesus demonstrates the sovereignty of the Father. But when God gives us a difficult path, we walk that path by faith in him and his promises. And Jesus never lies to us. He's always honest. He tells us beforehand that sometimes the path we walk requires that we carry a cross, that we die to self. We die to what we think must happen in any particular situation. Jesus told us that this would be so. Yet he also promises that whoever loses his life will find it. There is glory to be had in following the Lord Jesus through the valley. And third, we also know the end of the story. Advent should remind us that Jesus, very God himself, became incarnate, became a helpless baby. Imagine, if you will, that you're called to enter into a hospital ward of contaminated patients with some infectious disease. You have no personal protection whatsoever. But if you do not enter into that ward, then everyone in it will die. Not only are the patients sick and contagious, but their sickness causes them to lash out in their pain. They say hateful words and perform despicable acts hoping that others will feel some measure of their pain. They even resist those who are trying to help them in that moment. That gives you some semblance of what Jesus did when he entered into this sin-sick world in order to save us. He became incarnated to bring us a remedy to our sin because that is what the Father required. And just as the Father's plan required Jesus' death, it required his resurrection and glory too. God the Father kept his promise. And Jesus demonstrates that trusting to the end requires faith. Now, some of you are going through excruciating pain right now. Something has been ripped away from you. You've lost a loved one. Maybe a spouse has walked out on you. You've lost your health. 
Maybe a child who you thought was saved is no longer demonstrating the fruits of the Spirit. In such moments, consider the whole life of Jesus from his birth to his ascension. Each step he took in faith, trusting in the will of the Father. Yes, look at the cross that pays your debt, but also look at the glorious resurrection. He is alive. He conquers. And he is the first fruits that you too will live no matter what you endure in this world. You will live with him and you will reign with him to the very end. Christ's example shows us that there is always purpose in the suffering. May we remember the ending as well as the beginning and the middle part of the journey. May we pray Matthew 6.10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your faith in such moments may be weak, but he wins. He always wins. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would take example by looking at the Lord Jesus' life, the example that he set in faith. At every moment, when there was a time to waver, he never gave up. He always exercised perfect faith in you. Therefore, he is the perfect acceptable sacrifice before you. And because of this, Lord, we can see that there is glory that awaits each and every one of us. The glory is to be with you forever, to no longer have any sin that is inhibiting our relationship with you whatsoever. To know that you are working in us even in the midst of our weak faith and our trials and the times when it's hard to lift up our head. But Lord, you are doing so because you have made a promise to us and your word is always sure, it is always true, and the example is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, keep our eyes on Jesus. Help us to look at the author and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith, Lord. Allow our faith to be in him and what he has accomplished on our behalf so that we will no longer rest in our own devices, but that we would look upon Christ knowing he has accomplished it all. Oh, may he receive the glory in such a moment. We pray, Lord, that just as he has come to us, that we now would come to him. We pray in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.